Hello everyone and thank you for logging into this fifth part of our Science and Life webinar series on rare diseases. My name is Sean Sanders and I'm Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. I am happy once again to act as moderator for today's discussion. In this nine-part series that will run through the remainder of 2021, we are unpacking many different aspects of this important topic of rare diseases. If you missed our previous webinars in the series, you can find archived recordings at webinar.sciencemag.org. This webinar, as well as recordings of future events, will also be posted there. Previous webinars in the series have focused on a range of topics, including the challenges of diagnosing and detecting rare diseases, as well as neonatal and prenatal testing. In today's event, we are diving into the topic of intelligent testing for rare diseases with an emphasis on technologies like artificial intelligence that can aid this process. Finally, thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. I'm now delighted to introduce our four fantastic panelists that we have on the line today. And as usual, I'm going to give each of them an opportunity to introduce themselves uh, to you, and we will do that right now. So welcome to all of you. Uh, thank you for making the time. And perhaps I can ask Dr. Solomon to start us off. Uh, ben, if you'd like to go ahead. Sure, thank you very much. I'm Ben Solomon. I'm the clinical director of the National Human Genome Research Institute. I'll call it NHGRI, which is part of the NIH here in the United States. I run a small research group that focuses specifically on artificial intelligence as applies to genetic conditions. And previously I was the head of a biotech company that did a lot of genomic and genetic sequencing. And of course, as we'll talk about, um, AI and related methods are, are very important there. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that I interact and help support a lot of investigators here who look at rare conditions, genetic conditions, all aspects of them, and they're starting to use more and more of these approaches in their research. Thanks again. Great. Thank you, Ben. Uh, next, uh, let's have uh, Dr. Brazil. Uh, welcome, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so I work, I'm a researcher and patient advocate at the Portuguese Association for Congenital Disorders of Glycosylation which is uh, a rare disease. And we are part of the glycoimmunology group and the University Nova Lisbon. And we have also created an international network uh, joining together several researchers, medical doctors, and also patients, their families and, and patient associations from all around the globe, and uh, which is called CDG in LA Spain. And part of our work is to help families and patients and give them resources and one of the things that we do is literature revisions, and we have been working on the team uh, on the subject of artificial intelligence and how it can help uh, push for research and therapies in rare diseases, particularly congenital disorders of glycosylation. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sandra. Uh, next, I'm going to turn to Dr. Tun. Uh, Sylvia, uh, thank you for joining us. Yeah, hello. My name is Sylvia Thun. I'm from Germany, Berlin, and I work at the Charité Universitätsmedizin. And here I am a medical doctor. So I'm a medical doctor in my first um, part, and, and I'm an engineer and an informatician as well. And so I work within the field of digital medicine since 20 years. And um, I'm the chair of HL7 Germany, and I uh, work together with HL7 International, ISO, and the Global Alliance, um, like to have better and more standards in the world for um, IT um, in the medical field. Beside that, I'm working here in Germany with, uh, together with the Genome DE Initiative and in Europe with the One Million Genome and Beyond project. Wonderful. Thank you, Sylvia. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, we have Mr. Islak. Uh, Julian, uh, please go ahead. Uh, thank you. Um, my name is Julian Isla. I'm based in Madrid in Spain. I work for Microsoft and in Microsoft, my, my team is working on data and artificial intelligence. On top of this work, and because I have a son with a rare disease, I started to be engaged as patient representative. Uh, 12 years ago. And right now I'm the scientific uh, officer of the Dravet Syndrome European Federation, which is the European organization for Dravet Syndrome. Dravet Syndrome is the condition of my son. 
And also, um, I'm the, the founder and chairman of Foundation 29. Foundation 29 is a nonprofit organization trying to use machine learning to improve or to create better decision support tools for physicians. And also, I'm involved in, in the regulatory field because I am patient representative uh, an European medicine agency and uh, a member of the Orphan Drug Committee. Wonderful. Well, thank you all. It's, it's really fantastic to have you, you all here. You come from very different and varied uh, places and uh, organizations. So I, I think we can have a really interesting discussion. Um, I noticed, Julian, your um, connection is a little bit fuzzy. So hopefully we'll, we'll be able to retain you. And apologies to the audience uh, for the quality. But uh, um, I think uh, these days with Zoom, we all understand that sometimes things don't work quite as well as we'd like them to. Um, so I tell you what I'd like to do um, is start off the, this webinar by talking uh, fairly broadly about artificial intelligence, what it is and what it means, um, and then we'll, we'll dig in a little bit to the application of artificial intelligence in rare diseases. Uh, so uh, Ben, I think I'm going to come to you if I could with this first question, and that is um, how do we define AI and how is it different from machine learning and deep learning, which are other terms that uh, are people are probably familiar with related to artificial intelligence? Sure, yeah, no, I think it's very important to start by defining some of these things. We hear them talked about all the time in lots of different contexts. When I was driving to work this morning, there was an ad on NPR about an AI-based company, and so it's, it was just interesting how much you hear it. So the way I like to think about it, and I please other panelists and others correct me or add nuances, because these are gonna be really generalizations but it's maybe this series of concentric circles. So artificial intelligence is the outermost circle. Um, and as the name implies, it's the use of algorithms, uh, software to help computers act intelligently. And I'm doing that intentionally in quotes, hopefully intelligently, hopefully accurately. There's this idea that maybe it mimics human thought patterns. I think superficially there are some connections, but there are a lot of differences. And there's this whole fascinating field about, of cognitive science in that area. Within artificial intelligence, again, as the name implies, machine learning is the process through which machines or computers can use algorithms to learn from a set of data. And again, there are many, many ways that this happens. So it's not, I wanna make the point that it's not all, oh, this is the method that it works and, and here's how it is and you just let it run and machine learning happens. There's lots of different nuances to this. More recently, there's been a lot of emphasis and a lot of buzz around deep learning, which is, you know, again, a circle within machine learning and that's the idea that we take layers and these different layers extract more sophisticated or precise information as you go down in the layers. So a classic example in genetics that happens is let's say we're taking, uh, we're using deep learning to help diagnose patients who might have a genetic condition. So we train a computer to be able to recognize that from images of different people. So in the, in the kind of the first layers, we, the computer might be able to recognize okay, this is a, a border or this is part of the picture. And then recognizing say facial parts like ears or eyes and then the whole face. And then eventually we recognize, hey, you know, this is a picture maybe of Ben Salman or this is a picture of someone who does not have the condition of interest or this is a patient with this condition of interest. And there's been a lot of uh, emphasis on that partly because of the availability of some of these algorithms. Again, I'd invite others to comment on this. This was a, you know, full of inaccuracies and generalities. That's kind of how I think about it. Great, thank you, Ben. Anybody else like to uh, give us their take? <laughs> I, no, I think I think it was a very good explanation because you know definitely artificial intelligence is is the, the broader term, and then you have those other categories that are within the the, the biggest the, the bigger definition. Mm -hmm. So I think it was it was really good. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you, Ben. Yeah, um, and, and yeah go ahead. I, I I think. We need to use uh, we need to use large data sets to train these algorithms. So we should talk about uh, data and about um, precise data. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we are definitely going to get onto that, um, and that's a, a really important point. Um, I, th I I'd like to um, ask you, um, and maybe Sylvia, I can come to you with this. Where are the areas that artificial intelligence really excels? Um, and also on the flip side, where does it struggle? Yeah, first of all, where do we get the data from? Um, um, most of the time we, we just use images, like images from uh, pathology images or radiology images or even images from faces. 
so we can predict what kind of um, disease um, someone somebody has. Um, the second um, part are demographic um, data, and um, as you all already said, um, omics data. And uh, besides that, we we um, try to um, work with diagnosis and symptoms. And we have like startups here in Germany, or I think or around the world, who try to predict uh, um, with a symptom uh, what kind of uh, rare disease or disease somebody has. Mm -hmm. Great. Any other thoughts, um, particularly on, on where, where AI will, will have some issues, uh, Ben? Yeah, so I guess one um, recommended reading I'd have is uh, the book Deep Medicine by Eric Topol, which talks about this and other topics. Um, which is great. And in that book, Eric makes the point that one of the ways that AI is really good or one of the areas is what he called would call classifying or labeling. So just like Sylvia said, can I take a bunch of uh, images that a pathologist might look at or a radiologist or a cardiologist looking at the heart or the electric patterns and classifying some of those other things. I think one of the other areas that's really interesting and these really intersect and some very clever people have figured out ways to make these intersect more than they would naturally is looking at bunches of words. So uh, things like medical records and being able to make diagnoses that otherwise would be missed. Um, in my mind, they, these, these approaches tend to work really well with large data sets that are, uh, have been collated, just again, as Sylvia said, very carefully to allow us to start to learn from them and allow the algorithms to start extracting information from them. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the terms that comes to mind that uh, researchers use often is junk in, junk out. And I'm, I'm going to guess that if, if the data is not solid that you're putting in, then you're not going to get good results out. So um, maybe, Julian, I can, I can ask you this question. So it, when you're looking at data that you're collecting, and we'll talk specifically about rare diseases, um, how do you ensure that this data is going to give you going to allow the, the artificial intelligence algorithms to learn what you want them to learn and to be able to give you trustworthy results? Right now, this is a big problem because one of the problems that we are facing, I mean, the research groups working on diagnosis, diagnostic tools for rare diseases is the lack of data. Mm -hmm. if, if you try to get good data sets of patient records, for people with rare diseases, it's very difficult to get those, those records. They, there is no, uh, you know, open access data for those records. Um, and the, the, the quantity of, of medical records that we have for people for, for rare diseases is reduced. The other problem that we are facing right now is the existing databases with curated information about rare diseases is plenty of mistakes. You know, because the the curation of the databases has been done by humans for so many years, and humans are prone to to make mistakes. We know it. Just one example, you know, uh, for the condition of my son, um, the the condition is a neurological condition. Uh, several years ago, I realized one of the symptoms for the condition of my son was uh, photosensitive skin. And this is not a symptom for the condition of my son. So, and the symptom was in Orphanet, which, which is the European database for, for rare diseases. And I contacted the, the guys from, from Orphanet asking, why you have photosensitive skin for Dravet syndrome? And they told me, well, we don't know. <laughs> but after some research, they realized that photosensitive skin in the tool they use for tagging is close to photosensitive seizures. Hmm. And the problem was the coder, the people doing the tagging for the, for the symptom, make a mistake, normal, they are humans, but the mistake has been in the database for so many years. Hmm. And this is a problem that is happening because when you are looking into other conditions as well, they, are, they have mistakes, they are symptoms that the patient groups, they don't recognize. And we don't have information about frequency, severity, onset. You know, this is a still an ongoing problem that we, that, that we have to solve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this sort of brings me to the, the next point that I wanted to touch on, and that is, is are all data equal or are more, some more useful than others? And just um, going off what you were just saying, Julian, um, 
uh, is it possible to use AI to detect these types of errors in the databases? Um, so uh, um, how about we ask Sylvia if you, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. We have different um, kind of data and um, we should look at the data enterer. Who is this? Uh, who is responsible for documentation and um, at the software vendor? So if you if you're working with um, terminologies like international terminologies like Snomicity or uh, the HPO, that's the human phenotype ontology, um, the software vendor can help to enter and to, to document the um, data in a correct manner. If you're not working and you are allowed to just use free text, it's very hard uh, for AI algorithms to use the data or to train the algorithm with this uh, free text. And even if you are using NLP technology, natural language processing technology, um, it cannot capture data in a very good and precise way. So first of all, we should have a very common uh, international language and beside that, we have to have a um, international syntax like HL7 Fire. That's fast um, healthcare interoperability resource. That's a language based on XML and JSON to exchange data. And within this data, we should and we must. Uh, in my opinion, we must have a common international terminology. Not, not only about the genes but on the variants, but on the clinical phenotypes as well as for symptoms and diagnosis. And many of these um, um, the, uh, diagnosed rare diseases don't, have a, don't even have a name. So there should be an organization, a worldwide organization like Ofonet or the WHO or some other organization who is responsible for the governance of giving names to um, diseases mm -hmm and of um, um, putting symptoms to the, and genes to the uh, um, um, disease. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Julian. Yeah, Sylvia raised a, a very, very important topic from my point of view, the, the topic about how we put names to, to conditions, to diseases, you know, because uh, for example, the condition of my son, Dravet syndrome, has the name of the doctor the French doctor who identified the, the symptoms and the, the set of symptoms are the syndrome. But right now, this is not happening anymore. The diseases, they don't have the names of doctors. They have the names of the genes. And this is impacting um, very in a very powerful, powerful way patients' organizations as well, because the patient organizations, they have the name of the genes. And and I'm not sure if we have to look for a specific names, you know, because from my point of view, a name is just a name. If the name is not able to embed information, it's not useful. Uh, let me give you an example. You know, in, in astrology or astronomy, the, 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 the astronomers are naming the stars with coordinates, mm -hmm. you know, because the coordinate and the naming is giving information. If we name conditions like Dravet, Red, Lenos Gasto, Down, you know, it's useless for a computer. Mm. The computer is not able to process this. You know what I mean? So, uh, and I'm wondering if in the new, in the, in the new way we are naming medicines, the medicines will be uh, a new methodology to pro to process this information and add information into the name. You know. But I'm not sure the best way to do it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sandra, you, oh, you want if to... If I could add just a... Oh, sure. oh go, sorry, can I go ahead? Go ahead, Ben. Okay. So I want to add a couple points in response, uh, or I guess to echo both what Julian and Sylvia said. So first, there's a, a, a neat paper that got published about a year ago uh, by Katz et al., an American Journal of Human Genetics, um, that talked about clinical diagnosis, molecular diagnosis and clinical molecular diagnosis, which is, as the name implies, we have both. And I think I agree there's a lot of work to be able to allow us to better define and think about what these conditions are and what's biologically causing them, as well as to allow smart computer systems to parse the data a lot better. You know, I, I completely agree we're decades behind where we should be or we're we're still using methods that were done decades ago to try to do things that, were, that are much more exciting 
uh, but were hampered by these older uh, methods. The other point I want to make, um, again, just to echo what Sylvia said, is that you know computers can sometimes recognize these problems. What I think is also exciting, problems with data sets rather, and, and so on and so forth. What, what there's some interesting research about is that computer algorithms can actually correct some of these problems. So for example, take a, a lousy image of an X-ray or some kind of neuroimaging like an MRI or a pathology slide that's not really too good. Can computers fill in some of the gaps and correct for that? Now we have to be really careful about that, which gets to the next point because computers will accept the biases and problems and everything in the original data set. So we can allow the computers to correct things, but we don't want them to correct things based on lousy uh, implications or suppositions and so on and so forth. One thing where this happens a lot, and, I, and we can maybe go into this point later, but is unfortunately a lot of the data in the system so far are based on patients and, and control people, people without conditions from European, from white European ancestries. And so extrapolating from those populations to other populations may not work or may work much worse or may introduce all sorts of problems. And so there's efforts um, to be able to correct that among a lot of the other issues there. Thanks. Mm -hmm. uh, Sandra, I wanted to um, just come, come to you quickly. Okay. Sorry, I just, I just wanted to add because uh, I think that the nomenclature is definitely very important. And also I think that it needs to be, we need to have a consensus even between the, the doctors that do the, the the annotations and 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 register the data because for example uh, again from from my uh, experience working with with congenital disorders of glycosylation with cdg between europe and yeah for example the united states there are uh, it the, there is not a, a consensus a definite uh, definitive consensus between the nomenclature within this particular disorder so i think that is this is also very important and very impactful because some doctors may not consider consider one specific disorder as uh, cdg and others may do so you will have those differences in the records and then that could have an impact in using these methodologies and artificial intelligence because um, the annotation will be different mm -hmm. and then you are losing information in a sense so i think we need to be we need to have uh, uh, we need to establish very well what is the condition and the, the definitive nomenclature so we can all uh, run on the same basis and give use the same names so we we can use the same data type mm -hmm. uh, sylvia yeah and um I want to add something to Ben. Um, there's a very nice article in Nature Digital Medicine from Cirillo about, about sex and gender differences in AI. So not only the white men, <laughs> but uh, yeah, white men uh, for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we have to very closely look up the data. Of, um, and for instance, our AKI um, algorithm about um, uh, kidney injuries um, is based on um, data from 96% men. So this algorithm can cause harm to women if we are not like um, um, calculating this bias out mm -hmm. of the data. So I guess to just to reiterate the point again is if if the algorithms are biased, then the results that you get out are going to be biased. So we really need to address um, how these algorithms might be biased and make sure that we're providing them with data that is is going to remove that. Um, I, I did want to come back to something. Um, so you, um, Sylvia, you talked about uh, having a standard syntax, having uh, a common international terminology, having consensus. So it, it seems that this is not really happening right now, maybe to some extent. So what can be done about that? And, and also what can patients or patients' families do to advocate for this? You know, now hopefully they're watching this webinar, they understand some of the issues. Is there something that they can do? Um, and uh, Sandra, maybe I'll, I'll come to you with this question. Sorry, can can you repeat the last part? Sure. I, you know, now that now that patients might understand that this is an issue, that there, there is no common syntax, um, is there anything that they can do, the patients and the patient's family, to advocate for this type of, of thing? Yes, definitely. I think that um, 
I think that patients uh, should also, also be included in the research. So we should have uh, patients uh, inclusive research, which is something that is starting to happen, but it's not so common. Uh, and also I think that it, we need to educate both sides. So researchers, because uh, from my, my experience as a researcher for, for, for the first part of my, my, my scientific um, uh, uh, path, we didn't have many contact with the patients so it was very it, it was all very impersonal and we were in the lab and and we did not have any feedback from them uh, and now working with the patient associations uh, association is completely different and we had many projects that were led by the patients and we actually discovered uh, things that were new and were uh, not known uh, by the researchers. So the patients have a lot of information and that uh, sometimes they are not even aware of that and the researchers are not also aware of that. So I think that we need to create these synergies between the patients and the patient organizations and the researchers and put everyone in, in contact and talking so they can share uh, their symptoms and uh, what is important for them and researchers can learn uh, and, and have the, that learn with, with their experience and then incorporate that, that knowledge in the research. So I think that that is, I think that def definitely the first step that needs to be taken in that sense mm -hmm. to, to make sure that patients are included so we, we could have researchers uh, reaching out to the organizations or vice versa, and then forming little um, sci uh, patient com committees uh, in which they have input uh, uh, about the research, and then you you can have their their opinions. And also, I think that um, it will be very uh, very important also to include the medical doctors because they have also a lot of information. So I think that. It's very important to create synergies between all the stakeholders because uh, they have uh, all, all all of the information is there, and the problem is that I think it's it's dispersed and we are not communicating properly. So I think we, we need to address that. Mm -hmm. Julian, uh, maybe I could I could come to you and you actually the story that you told about uh, your your son's condition and you advocated for him and went you know, to the organization, the databases, and told them that was, there was an error. So I'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah, uh, just one example of one of the um, experiments that we did in, in Foundation 29, because we have been working in a tool to facilitate the process for diagnosis. And the tool has two versions. One is for patients, one is for physicians. And the idea of the tool is uh, that the tool could be um, a single platform to facilitate collaboration. In our idea, uh, we thought, okay, we have patients with needs. Uh, we have physicians willing to help. Why not creating a platform to allow all of them to collaborate to each other? Mm -hmm. The reality is that the general physicians, they don't have time to invest <laughs> time in, in additional platforms. You know, in, in Europe, the average time uh, and when you are, you are you have a consultation for a physician, the average time is around half an hour. In half an hour, they have to check the patient, they have to fill the medical record, they have to fill prescriptions, they have to they have to book the next appointment. And the feedback that we have from them is we don't have time. We created the tool with the idea of okay, maybe the physician is able to work after the consultation, you know, after the, the hospital hours. But the reality is they don't have time as well because they are overloaded. And and the problem is, and uh, connecting this issue with the, the point from Sandra, is that I guess we have to work together, you know, to make sure the patients with needs on diagnosis are connected with the international networks, you know, because the the general specialists, they don't have access to those networks. They don't have time for research. They don't have time to put a patient in a in a nice tool, you know, when they if they have to invest six hours for each patient, you know. And I guess this is an a med medical need right now. How we can make sure 
a patient with no diagnosis in Brazil uh, is connected, phenotype and genotype is connected with the international research networks. Because the, I'm pretty sure the specialist in Brazil is not connected with the other colleagues. The general, the, the, you know, most of them, right? For sure, they're going to be a specialist. And they, but if we want to do a tool, a platform for everybody, everybody should be able to use it, you know, not just the specialist. Mm -hmm. and ben, some thoughts from you? Yeah, just briefly, I want to say you know, the pandemic, COVID has been really terrible, but one, some good things have come out of it, lessons learned, so telehealth is often cited. Another one is the ability for scientists, academicians, patients, lots of folks to work together collaboratively uh, when things really matter, you know, and I think there's lots of lessons that we can take from that experience and apply to many areas of biomedicine, including the topic of this AI in, uh, in, in rare disease research. I think there's a lot that can be done if we can just like Julian said, get together, maybe set, not maybe, but definitely set some egos aside and work as a much larger unit rather than all these little silos. And it's a cliche, but I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I'd like to spend the second half of this webinar focusing um, more directly on rare diseases and the, the application of, of artificial intelligence in that field. Uh, so maybe we can ask, um, and Sylvia, I'll come to you with this question. Um, why do we need AI for rare diseases? What is, what is unique about it? And, and why is uh, the, the field of rare diseases or the group of rare diseases particularly suited to AI analysis? Yeah, the um, challenge is that we have to deal with a lot of data. And if you think about lab data or um, genome data and um, images and uh, grayscales and so on. And so we put this data together and then we create a diagnosis. And um, this is how we worked, uh, like doctors work. And right now we have so much um, more data and we have to memorize huge quantities of digital information. and we cannot do it anymore. So um, beside that, knowledge is getting more and more and more and so many publications are right now in this second uh, made here in PubMed and we have to read the new publications and so on. So we have to use uh, machines to help us. And not, uh, we, we still need doctors, sure, but machines or AI algorithms should just um, help us to find the right therapy and the right diagnosis. So um, beside that, um, we can accelerate the diagnosis. Um, here in Germany, we have like three to five years until um, one gets the diagnosis if, if he or she has a rare disease. And that is too much. And there are so many people who have a, a rare disease because rare is not rare. Mm -hmm. Great. Any other thoughts from the, the rest of the panel? I would just like to add to what Sylvia said. Uh, well, on the rare, it's not being rare because when you consider a rare disease by per se, it's it's rare and affects rather a few people. But considering that you have more than seven thousand um, different rare diseases that have been described so far, when you consider everything, all of them put together, so you have a very large part of the population that is being affected, and really the time. I think that not having a diagnosis, it's a very big problem, but a misdiagnosis, it's, all, it's also a very big problem because that patient might have been taking wrong medication that is not helping or might even uh, harm, uh, I mean, not harm the patient, but will not benefit the patient. So I think that we have to address both, uh, not, uh, um, not the diagnosing the patient, but also misdiagnosing the patient is very, it's also very important. And considering that you have uh, so many rare diseases, I think that uh, artificial intelligence is it's going to be very important because I, I mean, it's, it's impossible for the doctors to memorize and know all of those different uh, rare diseases. So I think if you have a tool that can help in the diagnosis by uh, by the recognition of, for example, um, a facial characteristics that are specific to a rare disease, I think that it will be tremendous uh, of tremendous help because it's it's impossible for for the clinicians to know the symptoms and presentations of all of these disorders. Mm -hmm. 
And if I could just if I could just add to that, I think one of the things that these methods can do is really level the playing field. So I won't speak for other countries. Maybe you guys have have different um, experiences. But here, if a patient is I don't want to say lucky enough, but is lucky enough to be near a large medical center, an academic medical center with lots of experts there or and I hate to say this, but have, quote unquote, better insurance, they're more likely to get a, a diagnosis quicker. They have more access to some of these things. So perhaps one goal of this is that AI will be able to level the playing field. So it doesn't matter where you are in the United States or in other countries, these algorithms will provide access quicker and really hopefully cut down the time to diagnosis. And just as importantly, the time to making sure that one is following the best management guidelines and connecting with the best experts and and just as importantly other family groups who often know more than the experts uh, in terms of the best way to manage patients mm -hmm. just just to add uh, that and diagnosis is just part of the medical need when you have diagnosis uh, probably you will need a treatment mm -hmm. and unfortunately mm -hmm. uh, if you check the number of orphan drug designations that we have in europe we have 170 medical products with under designation for around 100 conditions. Just 100 conditions, rare conditions, mm -hmm. have a treatment with a valid indication. That means that most of the rare diseases, they don't have a treatment the, for the condition, a treatment just for the for the conditions. But, but one important, and I would like to ask uh, to my colleagues what they think about the paradigm of uh, precision medicine and rare diseases, because uh, Dr. Paul, uh, I really like the, the books from Dr. Paul, you know, and he says that, you know, in the future, uh, precision medicines uh, means that every everybody will be rare, mm. because uh, we will be able to, you know, um, stratify our population into the individual level. And when that happens, everybody will be different. And the border between rare conditions, uh, prevalent conditions, will disappear. Mm. This is a phenomenon that we are seeing right now in the other way uh, with the European regulation, because we can see how the pediatric cancer is using the orphan drug regulation to position therapies for cancer. And this is not why we created the orphan regulation, right? The orphan regulation is created to protect the development of new drugs. For cancer, you know, there there is research. They are in a different, much more different situation that so many patients with not no option, right? And in the same way that, uh, you know, the cancer is being rare, I'm wondering if the rare conditions will be not so rare, you know, because of the, mm. Uh, you know, if we know more information about people, the people, everybody will be rare. And this distinction won't be valid. I'm not sure what my colleagues think about that. That's a, a great question. Yes, I, I, go, go ahead, Sandra. I think, I think it's a very interesting point. And um, also, I think adding, adding on that, I think that uh, uh, I, I read an interesting article uh, the other day that said that for rare diseases we should not we, we should for example if you uh, develop um, gene therapy that can reach the liver uh, with good results then that that uh, therapy should not only be used for that specific uh, rare disease it should be open to all uh, rare diseases that have the same issue but the problem with that is that it implies, once again, communication and collaboration and the willingness to share the results and, and the products of the research. So I think that, once again, we need um, to boost collaboration between the groups. And uh, I think that we have in science, we hear a lot publish or perish. But in this case, uh, because you need publications, but in this case, I need to I think that we need to think about the greater good, which is the patients and the families and the impact that not having uh, a treatment uh, is having in these people in, 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 in these populations. So I think that we need to put our, our uh, strengths and our resources all on the same pot and and go forward with with the research. Mm -hmm. um, I guess. My quick response or not, it's not going to be quick. I'll apologize for that. But to Julian's question, um, 
is, you know, I, I'm, and I'm very biased about this. I think precision medicine, however you define that, is really exciting. And all the new technologies and methods, I think, are greatly going to improve health, both for those affected by rare diseases and others, their family members and others who don't have conditions. What I do worry about, just to be a little bit of a devil's advocate, is this idea of the narcissome. You know, as so we talk about the genome, looking at DNA, the transcriptome, looking at RNA and all these other ohms that we talk about, the microbiome. There's also this movement to saying, okay, let's put a lot of these emphases and a lot of these technologies to focus on healthy people and really get to know every single bit of data around them um, for health reasons. And I think that's not a bad thing at all. I don't mean that, that it's one or the other, but I would not want the emphasis on that to take away from the emphasis on helping patients with really severe congenital or, or any kind of rare or genetic condition where just like Julian said, there aren't just aren't enough therapies and there aren't enough ways to, to manage these patients to, to help them have better qualities of life. Mm-hmm. So I think that a, a really fascinating point, Julian, thank you for bringing that up and something that I think is important to think about in the future. Um, I did want to come back to something else that you said about therapies, because we haven't really talked about that. Um, and Sylvia, I'd like to put the, this question to you. Um, what is, in what ways could AI be applied to matching therapies to diseases, and especially often drugs or drugs that um, offer treatment of other diseases that might be applicable to certain rare diseases? Are, are people thinking about this? Is there any work in that space? Yeah, let's think about our pandemic situation and not about the rare disease situation. So we had the chance uh, because we had so much data uh, uh, throughout the whole world. And so um, the FDA asked uh, us here in Germany, our B farm and the European Medicine Agency, are there any therapies? Why were you so good in the beginning of the pandemic here in Germany? Is there a chance that your people get other drugs or something um, so that you don't get COVID? <laughs> so we were wrong. We, we had it <laughs> the same. Uh, it was as, as, uh, hard as, as in, in, in the US, in Germany as well but later and so we can um, just um, look at the data and have a look at the data which kind of therapy can work for um, different um, diseases and even rare diseases that is the one point the other point is more the research area and i'm not a researcher in the in the drug development perhaps um, sandra can tell us much more about this area yes well uh just uh, just for everyone uh, to have an idea developing a new drug from from the from the start from the beginning is a very time consuming and expensive uh, process so it's uh, the latest uh, estimations tell us that developing a new pharmaceutical compound a new drug takes over 2 billion dollars so it's it's very very expensive and one area in which artificial intelligence can definitely help finding new therapies for rare diseases is looking for the therapies that have already been approved or that are, for example, failed um, clinical trials in phase uh, two, for example, because uh, for, for the ones that are not familiar, clinical trials have several phases. In phase one, you test safety in the general population. And then in, in phase two, you test efficacy, so if the drug will work in the patient population once you know that it's safe. Uh, So sometimes it fails in phase two because it works in the lab, but when you get two people, it does not work. So the idea is to use the uh, artificial intelligence tools to go through, because now you have several databases with a lot of information on the approved drugs and also the drugs that have been put on hold So you have uh, uh, different data about if they are working, if they are toxic or not, how they work. So you have all that data there and you can uh, check if those drugs will be able to work in in your disease. But in order to do that, you need to have a lot of information about your own disorder, about that rare disease. So in order to make uh, this approach work, you need to study very well uh, the rare disease and have molecular data, data from metabolomics and other omics. So you can incorporate 
all of that in one unique disease model and see if the information uh, you are retrieving from the drug is able to help the patients. I think that um, now the biggest problem is having that amount of information from the rare disease uh, to make sure that you have a good disease model because if the disease model is not good, you will not have a good result or even you will have uh, you will spend time and money and when you reach the patients you will not have uh, a good result i just wanted to point out because we did a literature review that was published in 2019 about artificial intelligence tools for rare diseases and i just wanted to point out that only one study so only one paper was available uh, uh, that mentioned artificial intelligence for this this drug reposition because it's it's the name that we we give to the the new use for known drugs. So I think that this is definitely an area uh, that needs to be approached for rare diseases. And and I think that uh, it's it's a very interesting field that need to be needs to be explored. Mm-hmm. So if if I could add just a, a couple um, thoughts to that. Um, one is uh, I encourage everybody to read Sandra's group's paper, which I thought was wonderful and, and just fascinating uh, review of the literature. It'll be really interesting just in the years since that was published. I'm sure there's so much more that's come out. But one point going back to the sharing is that it's really important. I understand it's just hard to do in certain contexts, but to make the algorithms and the underlying data sets available um, that are published in, in the papers that Sandra is talking about so that others can look and say, look, I need to make sure that this works. I need to make sure this works on another data set or I can, I want to build on this. And so if those algorithms aren't available, then it's, you know, it's, and I understand reasons for them not to be available, but it, but it hits a brick wall. Um, so, so sharing in that context is really important as well. The other point I want to make is that artificial intelligence, one of the other things it can do taking a step back from what Sandra was mentioning is that sometimes it can make these biological connections that we wouldn't realize. So, Sandra, I'm not an expert in CDG and congenital disorders of glycosylation, but there's so many of them. And on the surface, they wouldn't necessarily appear to be biologically connected. So as new CDG conditions are discovered or ones that might be CDGs, these methods, these artificial intelligence methods can be used to say, okay, maybe these are biologically connected and therefore maybe this can give us a route to therapeutics or you know, research into ways to, to directly treat the conditions. Yes, definitely. For example, we are, uh, well, it's not, artificial intelligence is not being used uh, to do that. But for example, uh, this is some, some CDGs can be treated by giving some, some sugars. So doctors are, are testing. So some CDGs are in the same uh, metabolomic path. So they, they are connected. So if one type of sugar works on one, then they are thinking, well, we are we are testing and are experimenting to see if it works on the other patients. So I think that's definitely the idea and artificial intelligence will, will be a tool that that can help doing that um, with with the other patients in the other CDG types that, that we have. So that, that will be very interesting. And also for other rare diseases that even in different paths, because I think that, uh, I think that going even back <laughs> uh, at the beginning we thought that rare diseases were a simple condition so you had one uh, one or two mutations that is were affecting a gene and only one gene was responsible for disease and now we know that it's not like that so we know that different genes in different pathways can have impacts on the disease and on the presentations and symptoms that the patients have. And also I think that that is very important to take into account when we use these uh, artificial intelligence algorithms. So we need to have a very clear idea of the general picture. So we cannot think about rare diseases as simple uh, diseases and uh, they are very complex and we need to take that in, into account and, um, and, and and definitely be able to make these connections because sometimes we think that by being on different uh, metabolic pathways, they are not connected. And by using uh, artificial intelligence too, we might find connections and that might be the solution for uh, therapy, for example. Mm-hmm. 
Great. So I'd like to um, come back to something that we were just talking about, which is data sharing, and I'd like to look at it from a couple of different perspectives. The the one is, and Julian, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to you with this question because you you work for Microsoft, um, and the the question is where where is the AI research in rare diseases currently taking place? Is it predominantly private companies and laboratories? Is it in academia and hospital systems? And how does that impact the, the, the sharing of those algorithms and that data? So if you could talk to that. Um, from Microsoft point of view, our research team is working not, not really on rare diseases, but definitely in technology that can help in the development of new solutions for people with rare diseases. Uh, for example, NLP, natural language processing. This, as Sylvia already uh, mentioned, this is very, very important to move from unstructured medical records into structured information. And Microsoft has a, a team of a very important team working on NLP. And right now uh, we have a product, you know, we have a solution that everybody can use. It's called, I guess, text analytics for, for healthcare. And this is a service in our cloud that everybody can use. But it's not just Microsoft. You know, my colleagues from Google, they have a similar service. Or my colleagues from Amazon, they have medical comprehensive as well. I mean, the IT industry is focusing on getting a structure from unstructured medical information. This is the priority for all of us. And this is the first step. But, you know, uh, I just uh, I, I want to highlight that the problem really is the lack of data. You know, AI is fantastic. We can do a lot of things with AI, but the main problem I see is the lack of data. You know, because this is a problem that the the medical field is having for other conditions and for rare diseases is much more important. Regarding and sharing the data, Microsoft is also working in in you know in ways of allowing institutions, physicians to share the data with privacy and security. This is very important. And technology like homomorphic encryption or differential uh, privacy, uh, they are already available. And this allow uh, researchers to use the data with privacy and security. Mm -hmm. But from a patient point of view, I guess, I guess the system is broken. If we really want to move forward, we have to empower patients with the data they own. Right now, the data gravity, gravity uh, like a physics phenomena, you know, where the data is going, the data goes to the hospital. This is the gravity, the gravity goes to the hospital, you know. But I guess we need, to, we have to change this gravity and allow the data go to the patients because the data is owned by the patients and we provide to the patients the mechanisms to restore the data and share the data with the people they want, we will solve a lot of problems, you know, the, especially the, the privacy and sharing problems because they, they will be the owners and they will make decisions by the data, you know. And I guess from my point of view, a change in the way we are managing the data and changing this gravity is going to be needed if we really want to do a big step forward. Mm -hmm. I think this is um, the reason that we need uh, something like an international patient summary on EHR that is um, like um, interoperable in the whole world. And we are right now working on this international patient summary on, in a, on a new addendum for a, a minimal data set for rare diseases. And this is based on uh, like a French uh, work from uh, ten years ago or something, but we have to we have to t talk about like the semantic interoperability, and because um, like we Europeans and especially Germans, they don't want to to use centralized databases, but they want to share data. So we have to have like a cloud infrastructure and with federated um, um, learning methods so that you can use, um, like bring the algorithm to the data, not the other way around. So this uh, is one step to build the infrastructure, and the next step to, to collaborate on the um, uh, data set and the international uh, work here. And um, hopefully this will 
be in the next few years. Do you think, Silvia, because in Europe, I'm a little bit disappointed with the speed of innovation in Europe, you know, because I guess we, we talk a lot, you know, we have to make consensus, we have to put everybody on agreement, uh, but, you know, we are not running really fast. Do you think the innovation will come from institutions? Or the innovation will come with a new company, a new entity, a new, you know, a new something new that will be able to transform the way we are doing medicine and we are dealing with rare diseases. You know, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. You know, <laughs> it's again yeah. a, a question for the panel. Perhaps a good example is our um, vaccination certificate in Europe. So uh, you can go through Europe and have one certificate. Perhaps this is the very beginning of things that are going more faster. Yeah, Silvia, but we don't know how to use it. You know, we have the certificate <laughs> and in top of the certificate, there are different rules in different countries. If you go to with, if I go with my certificate to Germany, the conditions are different than if I go to Italy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even more you know, of a challenge internationally. Uh, uh, Oh, and internationally, it's even more challenging, as you say, you know, yeah. uh, we have the, the, the technology is not the problem, you know, we have the technology, we have a certificate with a very solid infrastructure, but we don't know how to use it with efficacy. Mm -hmm. This is the, well, this is the main problem, you know, yeah. well, from we, my point of view. We are running out of time and I would like to just get to, to one more question. I, I did want to say, though, um, just to. On, on the data sharing, uh, I'd like to mention to the audience something that, that Sylvia pointed out to me and that uh, I was reading up on, which is the, the term FAIR um, for findable, accessible, interoperable and reusable. And, and I think it's, it's an important guideline for everybody to read and look at um, and consider because it seems like that is going to be the, the foundation uh, for data sharing in the future. Um, but the final question I, I wanted to put to the panel, um, just looking to the future, what might this look like if AI can be applied successfully to rare diseases and, and what might be the main challenges? So I'm going to give you just each a, maybe a 30 seconds to respond and why don't we'll, we'll go backwards. We'll start with Julian this time. Maybe I'm a little bit repetitive, but the big challenge is going to be, is going to be uh, the, change the way we are collecting data and, and how we are putting this data, that these data sets available to researchers and the medical community. This is a, still an issue that and we need to work together as citizens to be able to create good data sets because the data sets are the the, the, the foundation of good uh, AI models. Mm -hmm. Sylvia, your thoughts? I think the main challenge is to educate our young people and our doctors to use AI in a very good manner. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Sandra? Yes, I, I agree with, with Sylvia. I think that education and, uh, will be um, a, a challenge. And we need to focus on that uh, also for the patients, to educate the patients and, and the the, the patient communities that for them to know what is artificial intelligence, how it can be used, uh, where are the advantages, and also with the data, as Julian mentioned, which is the important uh, data, with how, how we need to collect it. So I think that uh, because when the patients are uh, educated, they are empowered and they can move forward and they can think of, uh, about uh, different solutions and they can partner up and they can uh, you know, make their own decisions and, and help push for researchers. So I think that we have to shift the balance between, uh, we shift the balance, for the, the, not the power balance, but the, the information that, uh, that is on researchers and clinicians and, and give them uh, to, to the patients also. Mm -hmm. And Ben? Yeah, so I, I, I want to mention before I go into, I guess, some predictions that I'm actually pretty optimistic. I think if I look at the younger generations, my kids and, and, and other folks, they're much savvier and much more comfortable with these technologies and with some of these big issues like data sharing. You know, they, they look at us all tied in knots about our concerns about data sharing and they say, no, 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 this can be a really good thing. So hopefully there'll be a generational shift. I expect there will be. And so some of these things will solve themselves, including with some te techno technological solutions. 
I want to mention, though, um, in response to your question, I, I should have mentioned at the beginning, I'm a I'm a pediatric geneticist by by training. And so what I hope in the future, I don't know if it's going to be 5, 10, 20 years, you know, it'll be a, it'll be a process, but there'll be a lot more artificial intelligence and related technologies that are supporting what we're doing. So instead of me, when I see a patient going to the computer and you know Googling or you know, using a fancier version of Google, some database to look up their symptoms and try to figure out treatments or try to figure out what they have and decide if I should send a genome on them or enroll them in a research study, there'll be a lot of stuff under the surface that'll help underlie and underpin what I do and make it faster and easier so that I, as a doctor, aren't spending all my time when I'm supposed to be talking to a doctor, talking to a patient and a family, you know, typing on the computer and writing my medical note and looking things up, but I can actually talk to the, to the patients and the families. And so hopefully a lot of these technologies will actually allow us to get back more and more to that, to the human contact. And I think the reason all of us went into in, in various ways into, into rare disease research and, and clinical medicine. Well, unfortunately, we've reached the end of the hour, so we're going to have to leave it there. Um, thank you all uh, for the fantastic discussion and for generously sharing both your time and your expertise. Uh, a reminder to our audience that this is just the fifth webinar in our 2021 series. So please look out for future events at webinar.sciencemag.org. Uh, thank you once again to our panel. Uh, it's been fantastic having you. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Uh, and thank you to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>